This episode of The Orthodox Conundrum deals with the Chaim Walder situation and the topic of sexual abuse of children. Please be aware that our discussion may be disturbing or triggering to some listeners. I actually don't think this has ever happened before where I've gotten this many phone calls from victims that call me just crying hysterically, just crying voice notes where I just start to play it and all I can hear is just crying and you can't even like make out what they're saying. This has been... Victims who have nothing to do with Walder per se. Nothing to do with Walder whatsoever. Victims are, are suffering right now. People affected by sexual abuse in any way, which is most people I will add because everyone has someone close to them, whether they know it or not, that has been sexually abused. And so the people that know that, the people that have struggled with that and grappled with that, who are either a part of the Haredi community or the Haredi community is important to them, they are, are in absolute turmoil and devastation at the moment. And I don't even have enough words to describe to describe the extent of it. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Chaim Walder was a highly respected and important voice in the ultra-Orthodox world, both in Israel and abroad. As I wrote in a blog post on the Times of Israel this week, his fame and power derived largely from his authorship of the wildly popular Kids Speak series, which purportedly told the real stories and discussed the inner emotional lives of Orthodox children. He also ran the Center for Child and Family in B'nai Brak, had a weekly column in Yated Daman, and hosted a radio talk show. The Israel National Council for the Child recognized his good work in 2003 by giving him its Magen Hayelet Award. The feel-good facade fell apart last month when Haaretz printed a well-sourced expose claiming Walder was, in fact, a serial sexual abuser. Once the article was published, the floodgates opened and more damning information came to light. Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu, the chief rabbi of Tzfat, revealed that he had heard testimony unrelated to the Haaretz article that attested to Walder's guilt and that his actions had literally broken up families. Most recently, on December 26th, Rabbi Eliyahu's rabbinical court in Tzfat heard from 22 people who testified that Walder had committed sexual assault and sexual harassment against girls, boys, and women. On Monday, Walder was found dead after apparently shooting himself in a Petach Tikva cemetery near the grave of his late son. Chaim Walder had written a suicide note where he called a couple of his accusers, including Rabbi Eliyahu, to a heavenly judgment and proclaimed his innocence. The news has rocked the Orthodox world over the past few days. It seems to me that there has been little talk of anything else. Because of that, I asked Shana Aronson, the executive director of Magain, to join me again on the podcast to answer some of the questions that she has been receiving over the past two days. Shana discussed the Chaim Walder situation last month in episode 87, and I appreciate that she took the time to answer some new questions that have arisen, as well as some questions that people asked after listening to our prior discussion. Shana Aronson holds a BS in psychology and certification in educational guidance counseling, training in abuse prevention with at-risk children and youth, and IFS therapy. Shana's past work experience includes mentoring at-risk youth through several educational programs. Shana served as the assistant director of SOFIA, a residential therapeutic home for adolescent girls at risk. She later worked as the social services coordinator for Magain Child Protective Services. She joined Jewish Community Watch as a case manager, and now she's the executive director of Magain. Shana Aronson, thank you for joining me again on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you for having me. Obviously, the past couple of days have been 
a very, very difficult time for people in the Orthodox Jewish world, for people in the Jewish world in general, people who once respected Chaim Walder. We heard already over a month ago about the crimes that he committed, the terrible things that he did. And then with his suicide, people are left in tremendous turmoil, and there's a lot to talk about. So that's why I appreciate your coming back today to talk about some of the issues. I know that you've been talking to people nonstop probably over the past 48 hours, and there's so much that needs to be asked. So let's at least try to get a few ideas out there right now. Let me open up with a question that was asked to me by someone I'm very close with. He has a young son who loves Chaim Walder's books. And even though he knew about Heimwalder's deeds a month ago, his suicide exacerbated the problem. He asked me, what should he tell his son? How does he tell him about what happened? His son is young. He's less than 10 years old. How can he tell him about suicide? How does he tell him about sexual abuse in that way? Can he even read his books? Let's start there. Yes. Okay. That's that's actually a few questions kind of combined in, in one, and I'll try to unpack that a little bit. Let's start off then about the books. That seems to be a very basic question about can sure. his son still read the books? Sure. So I actually want to start by saying that I, in uh, in contrast to I'm sure many, many, um, I, I really do believe that there are not in a situation that's this this difficult, this painful, this devastating. I don't think there is one right answer. And I know I've been getting, I've been getting so many questions from people where it's very clear that um, there's a feeling of being just at such a loss that they just kind of want someone to almost decide like for them, what, what do I do? What do I do with the books? What do I tell my kid? Like, give me, just give it to me package because I just can't even, this, this whole, this whole situation combines so many incredibly painful topics that like it's it's just so difficult to start to unpack. So I want to start off by saying that I don't believe that I have the answer to any of these questions. I believe I have perspective based on an, an awful lot of experience in this field, but um, I don't think there's only one right answer to to a lot of these questions. And I think it's important that parents also take in the information, but also trust their gut instincts in terms of what's best for their child and what their child can handle, again, there's, there is not one correct response here. With that said, I, as I said before, I think that when it comes to, when it comes to the books, I, again, I don't, I don't believe in taking a, a, a black and white response. I mean, I'm not comfortable with having the books. I know a lot of parents have told me they're not comfortable with having the books around at all. Um, I know I've, I've spoken to parents who, who put it to their children, who really discussed it with their kids and asked their kids what they thought, which I thought is, you know, if you if your children are at. That's actually what I recommended to this person. I said, I think you should talk to your son and say, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Discuss the issue with him and be willing to accept his answer. Yeah. That's what I told him I think that I would do. I think there's an opportunity. And again, so like what I said, I don't think there's one right answer. What I do think is that it's absolutely critical that putting the sensitivity towards the victims and protecting children be at the forefront of that decision making. So what that means is even if you decide, for example, like I had mentioned in the last uh, in the last podcast we recorded, that you are comfortable keeping some of the books around because he didn't actually write them. They're not his thoughts. They are the stories of others that he shared that I think it's it's really important to to cover to, to cover the covers, to put on book covers or to cover his name, um, because we know how devastating it is for victims to see an abuser, and I don't just mean their own abuser, but an, an abuser, a well-known abuser, continued to be sort of lauded in any kind of you know public way, and seeing a book on a shelf written by a a you know credibly accused rapist and molester is devastating for victims. So that 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 does need to be a priority. 
Um, but again, mm -hmm. given that he didn't write the books himself, I know that there are mixed feelings that people have. Some of these books were really groundbreaking in terms of, the, you know, they don't feel like they have any other books for their children that deal with certain kinds of like, you know, emotional intelligence kind of issues. Um, and I get that. I get that. And I think there's a space as long as we are making sure to prioritize the sensitivity to victims and child safety. Okay. Then let's move on to talking to kids about abuse. Maybe that will be the next thing we'll discuss. I do know that using, again, this example of the person I talked to, one of the reasons that he was nervous about allowing, so to speak, his child to continue reading the book was because in the future, once that child eventually does hear who this author is, saying, Dad, how could you have let me read a book by an abuser? So that's oh. one issue, which also leads into the question yeah. about talking to kids about abuse. So I'm going to go back to the first question, actually, or the first answer and clarify that this absolutely needs to be discussed with, with kids. Meaning if your decision is you think, you know, you do want to keep the books and cover the covers, the kids should know why you're covering the covers. That should be a discussion that you have. It should be something that should be also put to them. It should be understood, you know, that's an opportunity for a conversation where your kids understand that the single most important thing to you is that they are, they are safe and healthy, healthy physically, emotionally, spiritually, and that this is, this is complicated. You know, I think it's an opportunity also to teach children about the fact that there is a world of gray, even when you're an adult, and, and to put that, yeah, to put that to them and to make sure that they understand that. You absolutely should not be having a situation where it's a few years down the road and the kid is asking you, oh my God, how could you have never told me that this is what I've been reading? That's, that's terrible. Okay, Shauna, with that, let's move on to talking to children about abuse. Very often we all discuss the importance of telling children about how their body is their own, how people shouldn't touch them. Can you give some more specific directives of talking about abuse, using this as a petach, as an opening, to talk about what abuse is and how children should be wary of it and know what is allowed and what isn't allowed? Absolutely. So the thing about you know talking to children about abuse, that's something that's, it's a very long conversation. It's something that we, at, at McGinn, we actually offer a workshop on, and which is like, two hours. So probably not something that I can answer, you know, in just a couple of minutes, but I would say if I could really summarize like some really important points that number one, it's really critical to, to keep in mind that this is not a one-time conversation. This is about an ongoing kind of dialogue and subject that kind of comes up. Um, and this certainly a situation like this is, is needs to be an opportunity, horrible opportunity, one that we would not have wanted but an opportunity to speak to our kids. If you haven't started until now, this is absolutely the time. Do not assume that they're just going to figure it out on their own from what they'll hear or that maybe they won't even hear about it. They're going to hear about it. They've already heard about it. It's being talked about and so in, in the schools. It's an incredibly difficult time and it, it is really important to address it with, um, with your kids. It's a good idea to keep in mind, obviously, the age and the level of the child in terms of their cognitive abilities, in terms of their emotional uh, capacity. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that we really need to need to be addressing with our own children, even if the school that your kid goes to has, you know, played some part in addressing it, that does not replace the importance of, of a conversation with parents. Let me ask one quick question. I know there's so much to talk about in that particular discussion. But something you said just made me think, how do you balance if you could give some suggestions, telling a child to be careful without terrorizing the child so that they're scared of everybody on the street? Absolutely. It's that's a question I get a lot. And it's and it's a hard one because it's, you know, I always say that the hard questions are the ones that we ourselves really, really struggle with. I don't have a good answer for that as an adult, meaning like, you know, how do I continue to trust? It's one of the 
top things that therapists, when they're working with trauma victims, with victims of abuse, are, are continuing to deal with is, you know, helping them develop the capacity to trust again, because it is incredibly difficult. And it's important to make space for that. And it's important to explain that to kids, that sometimes when we hear about people that we really liked and respected, that were important in our lives, doing something really bad, it makes us feel like, oh my gosh, who can I count on if this person could do something bad? And it's important to keep in mind that, you know, people are, we're all human and people sometimes are complicated. And sometimes people that we thought were really good do some really bad things. And it's, and it's always important that you have in your life a number of adults that are safe for you to talk to. So that if one adult makes you feel uncomfortable or does something that's, that you feel in your, you know, in your tummy is not okay, that you have someone else that you can talk to about it. And that is not Lashon Hara. I think that's probably the statement of that's the day. That's a big issue. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's not Lashon Hara. Talking to an adult about something that's bothering you is never Lashon Hara, period. This is not, we're not talking about posting on the internet. We're not talking about, you know, telling the whole class. We're talking about finding trusted adults in your life that you can share absolutely anything with. And that is really important. I want to come back to that point in just a moment in a different context. But first, I want to ask about talking to kids about the suicide issue. They hear that Chaim yes. Walder died by suicide. That is its own separate issue that can be very troubling for people. And obviously, kids are going to hear about it. What do you say to yes. kids about it? So first of all, I, I want to, I'm going to go back to the Lashon Hara thing for a minute. And I'm going to say that, that such a, a tremendously horrible aspect of the message that now is going around so much to children that Lashon Hara killed Chaim Walder and embarrassing him killed him takes a, it takes a certain level of power and control or um, away from, from humans as, you know, oh, I was, I was driven to this, like this, he was driven to this. This is something that's, that's being said explicitly. Uh, yes, absolutely. That from is the respected that, people. Yes. And that message, now, obviously, everyone assumes, you know, when I hear that, people are saying to me, oh, my gosh, how are you doing that? Aren't you devastated that they're, you know, it's telling people to, to, to shut up abuse? Sure, that, that message is going on, too, and I am absolutely devastated, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the other, I wouldn't even call it subtext, because it's much more direct than subtext, is that suicide is a legitimate option out. And it's not. We cannot tell children that suicide is something that you just are, can be driven to. Children cannot understand the nuance of, of that. That is just, that is an outrageous message to be telling children that this is, suicide should be something that if when we have to talk to our children about it, which we do right now, that they understand that it's, it's not an option. And when someone moves to that option, it's because they were in a state of, of mental illness and they made a decision as a result of that. And, and it's, it's, it's a really sensitive issue because we don't want to stigmatize mental illness or people with mental illness or people that did certain never harmed another soul in their lives but have been living with suffering and committed suicide and we also don't are... want people who die by suicide to be said to oh it was something they did on purpose when i spoke yes. to shalom hammer he emphasized i think he's absolutely correct that the people who die by suicide generally don't want to die the illness makes them die they died by yes. illness not by their yes. own hand so to speak absolutely Absolutely. What we're talking about here, where somebody commit, committed suicide because they were not were not prepared, were not did not feel able, were not willing to face their own actions, that is an act that they committed on their own. Nobody made them do that. That is not what anybody wanted. It's not what the victims wanted. It's not what the media wanted. It's not what the base did wanted. They wanted justice. They wanted they wanted him to stop hurting people. 
And he had an opportunity to show up at the Basin and he chose instead of he refused to go to the Basin and instead chose this way out of the situation. And that that was a choice. There was, you know, there was another option on the table that he decided for whatever reason he was not willing to take. But giving children the message that there's legitimizing suicide as a out as an exit painful situation. Yes, because there are painful situations and obviously the children children are going to go through painful situations even in their own lives and the uh, meaning as children and the idea that okay well this is something that you know somebody who i really used to look up to respect to well he did this and we already know that the rates of suicide go up that's an effect that is well known that when a famous figure commits suicide suicide rates rise Hmm. and that is we cannot be forget complicit but we cannot be an a- actively uh, facilitating that kind of message. And we need to be doing everything we can to be working against that kind of message. What do we say to kids when talking about suicide? Again, Shauna, with the caveat that there can be no right or wrong answer. Maybe there could be some wrong answers, but there's no one right answer. What would you suggest the parents say when addressing this issue, apart from the fact that this is not a solution? I think that it's it depends, of course, on the age of the child. It depends on their maturity level, of course. I think that the idea that there that this concept exists that somebody can can hurt or even kill themselves is something that unfortunately is um, it is there it is present in the world that we're living in today and I think it's one of those painful issues that it is really important to talk about with kids um, the fact that this this does happen again it's not it, this is not an easy conversation and I, I just keep saying this but there isn't one right way to do it because it is so complex, that idea of just what we said before of, of making sure that children understand that suicide is not an option. It is not, it is not an exit at, while at the same time, not stigmatizing people in, in, you know, in our community that have committed, that committed suicide due to like serious mental illness and, and years of pain that they were struggling with. That's not an easy line to, you know, to navigate and to, to tiptoe on. Um, and that's why I think that I think that it's important as parents that we are honest with our kids that this is confusing and it's painful. It's confusing and painful for us as adults and that we're going to do our best to explain it to them in a way that is, you know, is the best way possible. So they'll be able to understand, but it is super tricky. And so if it continues to be confusing, we want them to feel safe coming, you know, back to us and continuing to talk it through. It is not simple. I think that itself is a very important message. The kids know that adults don't have all the answers either, that we also are confused and that there's a lot of gray out there and it's hard to talk about. I want to talk about something that you alluded to a few minutes ago in a different context. When you talk about this Lushenhara issue going around, how telling children that telling adults about someone hurting them is not Lushenhara. Rav Gershon Edelstein, who's one of the most important rabbinic figures in Israel, came out, I believe it was yesterday, saying that at least the statement that I read in a few different forums was that he claimed that when somebody sleeps with a married woman, he does not lose his share in the world to come. But if somebody embarrasses somebody in public, he does lose his share in the world to come. That was the opening statement that I saw where he effectively was saying that Chaim Walder, whatever he did, is not as bad as the people who were shaming him in public. And then he openly says that the people who shamed him in public drove him to suicide, and therefore they're murderers who have no share in the world to come. There are so many things that are wrong with the statement. 
I'm sorry, but it's very upsetting because, first of all, in terms of rabbinic authority, excuse me, but being completely out of touch with reality in this case, also in terms of the messages about Lashon Hara, the messages about not telling people, the messages about the relative weight of embarrassment versus being a sexual predator and so on and so forth. I'm just throwing this out to you. What do we say about this? What what do you tell people who look at Rav Edelstein as a great figure who is saying something which is frankly ridiculous and very hurtful? Again, it's that's that is something that I uh, it's devastating. It was devastating to hear that. Um, it was devastating to think about for me and I and I have actually to be to be totally honest and and very. Uh, about, you know, my own personal feelings the last few days. I think this, when I allow myself to think about it, it, it devastates me so much that I, I've been trying not to think about it and kind of push it off to the weekend because I don't have the time to, mm-hmm. to honestly, to mourn. There's no better, there's no other word for it, but to, as a, as a, uh, it, it's, it's really horrible to think about um, that the fact that that message was yesterday morning was marched in to the classrooms of thousands and thousands and thousands of Haredi children all over this country. And we will be living with the repercussions of that message for many, many years. And by we, I mean, we will be, we will be dealing with the repercussions of children who now will not tell because of that message. And unfortunately, it wasn't just Rav Edelstein. It was also others too. Yes. Yes. And they didn't just say it. They instructed the mechanchim, the the mechanhalos and the mechanchim of the Haredi chiduch establishments to give that message to students. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that, the the tens of victims of children who are currently or have been abused who sat in classrooms yesterday morning and listened to their rabbis and moras tell them that message, I it's um, is incredibly painful. And I did see yesterday there was uh, somewhat of a, I wouldn't call it a retraction, but a, a clarification issued by Eichenstein on, on Ravidelstein's behalf. It was said to me, and I was assured by people who know these things that it was legitimate, but I haven't really seen it uh, publicized very publicly yet, other than through the channels of kind of people in the know. I hadn't heard sure. about it. What was this retraction? What did it say? It, I wouldn't. I retraction is is not. <laughs> that's too strong a word. It was not a retraction, but it was a clarification that you know that Edelstein wasn't trying to say that if there are actual cases of abuse, if a child has been hurt, then of course they should tell someone, which is an important clarification. But a it doesn't a undo what late. was already said, unless he said Absolutely. that was wrong. This is right. If he were exactly. to say my original statement is invalid, this is what I really mean. That's one thing. But to say my original statement that your murderers who are not going to Olam Haba is still in effect, but also you should tell somebody if you actually were abused. Right. That That's ridiculous. I'm sorry. It's 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 not very useful. <laughs> Put it that way. It's not very useful. And I appreciate that he was probably contacted. And I'm so glad that we live in an age where he was probably inundated with people contacting him saying this was incredibly damaging. And that's why that clarification was issued. So I'm glad that there were people that stood up and made it clear to him but I don't think anyone could possibly have made clear the the havoc that 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 original statement absolutely wrecked for at, on so many children's lives. By the way, Shana, as you just said, I think it's worth noting that we always complain about the terrible damage that social media does, and it does do some tremendous damage. But this is an example where 
a statement which otherwise would have gone straight to the teachers and never would have been seen by most of us, and therefore the damage would have been done without any knowledge in order to undo it. In this case, it actually was able to mitigate the damage on some level because the public was able to complain about it. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important that we that we all know about this. It's important that we all know to ask our children. It absolutely is critical. When I say ask our children, I mean ask our children if they discuss this in school and what it, you know what was discussed that it how did it make them feel were they comfortable with the message that was given was it confusing to them um you know i know some parents feel like the school shouldn't be addressing it at all this should be something that the parents address i absolutely agree that the parent that parents should be addressing it with their own children nobody knows your child as well as you do but i think that schools can't you know you, you also can't pretend that you know this is like so it's burning in the you know as mm. it's in hebrew like this is burning in the streets this is not something that everyone can just go on and, and pretend to ignore so i appreciate that teachers do feel need to say something and it's important that that message be very very carefully articulated you know i've, I've spoken to people who said well you know it's always good to this idea that lashon hara is it well it's always good to focus on lashon hara well of course it's always good to focus on lashon hara but not no i disagree that now is the right time to be focusing on lashon hara because right now saying we need to work on lashon hara the very clear subtext is this was Lushenhara, the Lushenhara killed him, and and we need to not be talking about things like this. And, and silence them. is golden. This is yes. not the time for that. No, absolutely no. This is not the time. This is the time for victims need to tell their stories, we need to support victims telling their stories. And you know what? I'm going to be um, extremely harsh right now, which is not something that I usually do, but there is a reason that the victims needed to go to Haaretz, because there is no option for them in the Haredi media to share stories like this. And I say this as somebody who shares, helps victims share these stories every single day. And we bring them to the secular media because there is no choice. It's not because that's our first option. It's not because we haven't tried to beg and plead with the Haredi media establishment to share to share the stories of victims and to put those messages out there. No, it's been, it's tried. It is tried and tried and tried and the answer is flatly no. So if our if the Gedolim and if the Rabbanim and if the and if the media establishment, I'm not comparing all those three things, but I'm saying mm-hmm. all 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 of those parties could certainly help us with that and could help get you know stories into the media. And I understand people don't want their children opening up Yet's head and reading stories of sexual abuse. I get that. Obviously, that needs to be done carefully. But the idea that it is passionate there's no such thing as as a story of sex of, of somebody's you know abuse or healing from abuse being shared in the Haredi media doesn't happen means that the only option if we want to share these stories and we want to warn the community is to go to the secular media and it's outrageous and it should be upsetting us you know people are so upset how could the secular leftist you know newspaper is putting out these stories okay so put them out yourself would you rather you know the secular media shouldn't be telling us what to do with our children. Okay, I, I fine, I hear you. It's it feels disrespectful for someone to come in from the outside, so to speak, and and start telling us, you know, who's who's who and what's what in, within our own communities. Okay. Show fine. us a journalistic outlet in our community yes, that would yes. break this story and then we'll go there. Because what's the alternative? I understand that makes you uncomfortable and it's upsetting. It's upsetting to me too. But you know what's more upsetting? My child being molested by somebody that the entire community respects. Because I never found out that this man has been raping and molesting tens of children for years and no one ever talked about it. So this is the situation. It's not, it is, it is, it's not just not ideal. It's horrible, but it is the situation. And we need to fix it if we want it to be different. It's even worse than that, Shauna. This isn't really our topic today. 
it's one thing for them not to talk about sexual abuse at all. And I actually wrote an article in the Times of Israel, a blog post yesterday, which talked about how damaging that is. But let's go further. What about the fact that yesterday in the Ated, which is the organ of one of the Haredi parties, they had an obituary calling Chaim Walders Zatzal. They could have simply not written anything. Let's say, for example, I accept their, I think, incorrect policy of not talking about sexual abuse. Fine. Don't talk about it. So don't mention him at all. You know something? There are plenty of people who die and there's no obituary for them. So don't have an obituary for Chaim Walder if that's your misguided, but if that's your policy. But how could you have an obituary, two columns, talking about what a wonderful person he is, talking about the amazing things he did for children? It's not just not talking about it. It's actively saying we're going to cover up for abusers. I think that some of that, and it's, and I know after I just delivered that somewhat um, scathing <laughs> thought about the Haredi media, now I'm gonna, now I'm gonna like speak almost it's in their defense, although it's okay. not in their defense. But I do think that um, it's not in their defense. To be clear, it's it's horrific. But I, what something that I have pointed out to people a lot over the last couple of days is to keep in mind when you see certain comments on social media, um, and when you see you know certain things being posted, that some of it, some of it is coming from a place of absolute shock and horror and people really don't know what to do. And I do think there is a little bit of this idea that in the Haredi world, we have a, we're, we're raised with a really serious fear of all things related to Olam Haba and what happens after we die and the great, you know, the great final reckoning that we deal with. And I can tell you that as somebody raised in a, in, in very much within the Haredi Basiakov system, when I read the suicide letter, the first line of, you know, I'm going to bring you to Silman and to based in Shalmala made me a little like I, I had a visceral reaction, a physical visceral reaction, because that that statement is something that we are I was raised. It's a very, very intense thing to say. And it and it elicits fear. It elicits fear of, oh my God, what's gonna happen against me in Shamayim if I am if I do something to hurt a, a person who's dead. We we do have a lot of fear. Um, and some of that is absolutely based in halacha, the importance of respecting, you know, a mace and, and some of it, but, but it, it's certainly taken on a life of its own. And I would even add um, a little bit of, you know, as, as with, unfortunately, so many things in, in the from world, we, we've, we've taken a little bit in from Christianity, too, I think, of just sort of our, our fear of a concept of hell, which is really not not rooted in, in Judaism, right. but, but we've, we've incorporated. And I think there's a lot of people are, are panicking. I, I once had an incident, this is totally unrelated, but just an example where there was a, a rub that my, my husband and I had, were, had been consulting with many years ago. And, and we were asking about something very, very painful that we were dealing with in our, in our life and something that had the potential to be very damaging to very many people to, uh, emotionally and psychologically. And he had said that, no, you, you have to do X, the thing that was going to cause potentially cause a lot of pain, emotional pain, um, because otherwise you could offend, you know, certain people and there will be a kitrig against you in Shemayim. Hmm. And my God, if that did not <laughs> set us on the right and air, like that is that is a statement that in the Haredi world we take very, very seriously. And I think that there a lot of this came from a place of of fear, of like absolute panic. Oh my God, this, what's going to happen in Shemayim? Meaning, I dare not speak against Chaim Walder because what if maybe he's right and therefore if I say something negative about him, I'll be going to hell forever. Well, not, what if he was, not even if he was right, even if he was wrong, even if he did all the things that he did, but now he's in Shemayim and now I can't speak badly of him anymore. Now it's in Hashem's hands and now I better not judge him or I will burn in hell. I mean, so why not write nothing? Why not just ignore the whole thing? Uh, why write so something why that's saying- a laudatory piece? <laughs> 
Absolutely. So that's why I'm not saying this to excuse the media, because the media has a policy. That policy is damaging from start to finish, not just in this case. Um, I'm just pointing that out more as a general, you know, sort of trend that I saw in the way that people responded to um, were responding to messages online. We even had we have we have a number of support groups that we run. And in one of our support groups yesterday, one of our virtual groups, um, a woman, a, a victim of abuse herself, a victim of abuse who is you know, a, con a victim who's conscious of the damage so much so that she's in a support group, uh, a McGain support group, and she had posted a message saying, like, that basically so shocked and, and horrified by, you know, the lynch that, that drove uh, Walder to, to suicide. And this, this isn't the right and way. She and she called it a lynch. Yes, she, it's that word. And we were very sensitively responded to that with the understanding that, you know, this is a group of victims who are all just, I mean, triggered out of their minds right now. I can't even begin to describe what's going on. I'll get to that in a minute. But after we, you know, reminded her that's not what a lynch, first of all, that's not what a lynch is. A lynch is, is where, you know, the, the, the intent, the goal is to kill someone. And that was no one's intent. People wanted justice. They wanted safety. Nobody wanted him dead. And, um, and she, she apologized and said like, oh my gosh, that's so not what I meant. I was just so horrified and shocked that it, it just, this, that was a, like a statement of desperation. And I apologize. And I, and I wonder if how many other people have been posting things on social media that maybe they feel the same way about that, that wasn't, you know, and it's impossible not to have a visceral reaction to hearing something like this, to hearing a man writes this, you know, this horrible letter and then stands on his, over his son's grave and kills himself. That's, that is a, there's no way if you're human that that doesn't elicit very strong emotions. And I, and I do think it's important to give space to those emotional reactions that may not come from our, our thought out and rational true thoughts and feelings about, about the, the situation. So, That's a good point. but putting that aside, the media had a policy, has a, had a policy, made a decision, which was absolutely terrible. And, um, I, there's not even even much else for me to say about that because it is so upsetting. What you just said now makes me think of another question I know people have been asking. People have been grappling with the idea that now he is dead. And therefore, why is it so important that people say the allegations are true now? The man is dead. And what difference does it make at this point, whether it's true or not? Let him rest in peace or whatever. Let God worry about it. Why is it important mm -hmm. that people emphasize these allegations were totally true? So I would even change that question because I don't even think it's about emphasizing that the allegations were true. I think it's about being conscious of who hears when you talk, when you say what you say about this case. Chaim Walder is not going to hear you when you post on social media or when you say what you say about him and whether he was guilty or innocent or what should have been done or what was done badly or anything. The people who are going to hear you are your children, your neighbors, your friends, your spouse, all the people around you who statistically, some of them are victims or will be victims. And you are sending them the message of whether or not you are a safe person to talk to. Chaim Walder doesn't hear what you think about his guilt or innocence. It doesn't really help him right now. That's between him and Hashem, who thankfully is way better at dealing with this than any of us are. But what you are saying is being heard by other people. And that's what you need to keep in mind. Because if you send your children or your friends the message that you are not somebody who's going to believe these kinds of allegations, that you are somebody who's going to make excuses or, you know, try to find some justifications for these kinds of behaviors. You're not someone who's safe to talk to. And this world and community is not a safe one to speak up in. Mm -hmm. Sort of a, an important question, but a difficult one. People feel bad for Chaim Walder's family, and then they feel guilty for feeling bad about Chaim Walder's family. I know this isn't really a question so much as a request for clarification. 
How would he tell people who say they're confused about how they should feel regarding his family? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that, first of all, I want to say some, uh, another point, which is that all feelings are valid. And, and I think there needs, we need to give ourselves a lot of space to feel all the feelings right now. If you feel bad, that's, that's legitimate. You can feel, feeling bad does not change who, you know, your, your moral compass. Feeling bad is a sign that we are, we are human and we are compassionate. The question is what we choose to then do with that, with that compassion. But it's good to sit with those feelings because it means that we're human and we're sensitive and, and we have Rahmanis for people who are suffering. And that can only be a positive thing as long as we use our logic and our Bina, for lack of a better word, like our, our wisdom to do the right thing within all the painful feelings. As far as dealing with his family, listen, if somebody here is listening and they have a relationship with the Walder family, they know them, they're, then, I mean, like there's no, this is a family that lost their, their father, their brother, their, their, their spouse, their, they're in pain. They are also, by extension, victims of his actions and they're suffering right now. There's no reason not to feel sorry for them. That does not mean it's at the expense of the victims. You could believe absolutely that the allegations were true and that you support the victims 100%. If you know them, again, I wouldn't go out of my way. I don't know them. So I wouldn't go out of my way to go to the Shiva because there's just no reason for that. But if you're their friend or neighbor and they just lost their father or husband, then it, I don't think it's a stance. Again, if you're a public figure, it's a little more tricky. I know that conversation is going on this morning as well. But if you are a, just a, you know, you are a person who knows this family and they are suffering right now with a absolutely horrific situation, I don't think there's any reason that you need to feel guilty, feeling compassion for them and the pain that they're going through because they are going through pain. You also believe victims and you also support victims and you also support victims coming forward. That's those two things can exist at the same time. And I think that if the situation, if there's one takeaway from this whole situation, um, which ironically doesn't have anything to do with sexual abuse or suicide or any of the actual mm-hmm. topics being discussed, but the idea of the importance of us all needing to learn to sit in the gray, sit in the gray with our feelings when there is a complicated and complex and, and painful situation, if we could do that more, and if that message could come more from our leadership, I think we'd all be in a much better place. The idea that you have to choose a side, and obviously we should be choosing the side of the victims, but not every scenario, scenario requires choosing a side you know, feeling sorry for, for a family that lost their, their you know, that, that were also victims in this situation. You can feel sorry for them. I, I feel sorry for every single time we have a situation where we, uh, you know, support a victim and expose an abuser. I, I take time at some point and I sit with the heavy feelings of knowing that right now at this moment, that family is suffering. That is not going to stop me from helping to do the right thing. I am going to continue to do what I know is the right thing to help, you know, protect the community and to help support the victims 1000%. But you can still feel that this is painful and that's okay. Shauna, someone asked me to ask you a question, which is this situation with Chaim Walder is so strange. And this person was saying that it seems almost atypical because at least according to this individual, generally, and maybe you can confirm this is true or say that it's not true, generally a pedophile will abuse children, but won't also be having affairs with married women. It almost seems that the case is off the charts in terms of strangeness and doesn't fit into typical categories. Is that, is that true? Um, not necessarily. Meaning if somebody, we tend to use the term pedophile 
um, a lot in kind of pop culture. Not all child molesters are pedophiles. Some child molesters are, uh, well, I say this with some hesitancy because some child molesters are actually sex addicts um, that are non-preferential. And I say that again with hesitancy because there are, there are people that suffer with sex addiction that do not um, at any, in any way harm other people you know, outside of them, themselves. They don't engage in any non-consensual activities, sexual activities, but there are some that do. And I've certainly dealt with cases. Uh, this is not the first time that I've, that I've been involved with or heard of uh, victims who were abused by somebody who abused both adults as well as, as children. Mm-hmm. And you would call that more part of sex addiction rather than pedophilia? Is well, I, I, mean? I wouldn't. I would not because, I, first of all, that's, I, I'm not qualified to diagnose someone. And even if I was, I'm not qualified to diagnose someone if the, right. when I haven't met them. Um, but I'm just saying that that is sometimes that's, you know, that's something that I've seen in the past that I've been familiar with cases where, and again, where there were psychologists or psychiatrists involved, and that was the diagnosis. Um, I'm just saying that is, it is something that's not unheard of. It's not as mm-hmm. outrageous and out there. I mean, obviously, it's outrageous and horrible. But it's not as atypical for this kind of behavior. Exactly. As sometimes maybe people might think. Let me ask another question just about the Chaim Walder story in general. Another question which someone had for me after our previous podcast was released. Before the Haaret story was published, you knew about this, as you said on the podcast. And people had asked me if this was brought to the attention of communal rabbis. And if so, what was the result? I believe that there were there's something that people have asked me was it brought to the attention of communal rabbis. And also why didn't we do something about it? And I hear that a lot. I mean, and, and it's, and it's a valid question. And I can tell you that right now I've probably got about 1800 names of alleged abusers that not much is being done about at the moment because the victims are not, that's not true. It's less than that, that where there's nothing being done yet, but um, an awful lot of, mm. of alleged abusers where nothing is being done yet because the victims are not ready. And the fact is that there's, if, if I go to a communal rabbi, let's say, I, I do know that there were, it was brought to the attention in the past of some rabbis. However, bringing something to the attention of a rabbi doesn't mean that he could do anything about it. Just like bringing it to my attention doesn't mean that I, you know, that I can do anything about it. Just like I'll even say, sometimes bringing something to the attention to, of the police doesn't mean they can do anything about it because there is a system of, of order you know, law and order or just order and certain steps need to be followed. So if we have a situation where no victim is is ready to identify themselves in any way, shape or form or or do, you know, go speak to anyone, testify in any kind of kind of way, then I just I'm sitting with this information and there isn't much that I can do about it. And rabbis as well. Okay, Shana, by way of closing, people are talking a lot about the 22 testimonies that came forward on Sunday in Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu's Beit Din in Sfat, the woman who was recorded, or Chaim Walter was recorded talking to her, telling her how to deceive her husband or how to deny their consensual affair, as well as the other victims we heard about in Haaretz. Is there something that we should be doing for these victims right now who are probably in tremendous pain? Absolutely. And I would expand upon that further to make it clear and to really ask anybody listening to keep in mind that at the moment, um, it's not just the 22 victims that I'm sure, or however many of with victim, uh, alleged victims of Walder that are uh, that are suffering, but all victims. I, I can't even count how many phone calls and messages I've gotten over the last 48 hours um, from victims in, I, I actually don't think this has ever happened before. I've gotten this many phone calls from victims ju- that call me just crying hysterically, just crying voice notes where I just start to play it. And all I can hear is just crying. And you can't even like make out what they're saying. 
this has been victims who have nothing to do with Chaim Walder per se. Nothing to do with Chaim Walder whatsoever. Victims are are suffering right now. People affected by sexual abuse in any way, which is most people I will add, because everyone has someone close to them, whether they know it or not, that has been sexually abused. And so the people that know that, the people that have struggled with that and grappled with that, who are either a part of the Haredi community or the Haredi community is important to them. They are, are in absolute turmoil and devastation at the moment, and I don't even have enough words to describe to describe the extent of it. Um, the last few days, you know, people have been asking me a lot, why don't you know? I, I, there's, people have so many questions, and and could you do a video or could you do a podcast or something? And the reason that I haven't until now is because I literally have not stopped, have not gotten off the phone. None of our staff, none of the team at Magain, have stopped communicating with victims who are in such terrible distress right now. And I say this not just to depress everyone, but to first of all give chizuk to any victim who's listening that there is, I know that I it feels and I have felt over the last couple of days, there have been moments where I felt like we just went back 10 years um, as far as all the progress we made. That isn't the case. Sometimes there are dips and you know highs and lows. We will get back to as, as a community to, to the progress that we have made and we will continue to make that progress and you will be believed and we will make sure that there will be people that will believe you. And I do believe you. And for anybody who has any victims in their in their lives, whether well, whether they realize it or not, please reach out and you know with support right now because people are are suffering immensely, whether they're talking about it or not. If there are victims listening, I'm sure, unfortunately, there are. What would you say to them directly right now, and where should they turn if they really need some support? Well, I I would say again, you 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 are you are believed. You will be believed and you will be supported and there will be resources available. Those resources, you know, the progress that I just mentioned that, you know, feels like we've gone back, the resources are still available. We are blessed now with a plethora of of Haredi clinics that specialize in dealing with sexual abuse that offer therapy, just as an example, which is something that 10 years ago we never would have dreamed would exist. So there are resources available. Those resources are still out there. Reach out to to get them. You're obviously welcome to reach out to Megan if there's anything that we can do to help. And really, you know, to try to share, I think that it's, it's tremendous. It's almost like chutzpah for me to ask this of anyone right now. But if you can, if you can find the strength in yourself, now really is the time to share your story with somebody because people need to hear the stories right now more than ever because other survivors need to hear the message that their stories are valid and should be shared. And the community needs a reminder that abuse is far more prevalent than anyone wants to believe. And this is a a critical issue within our community. And the only way that people really know that and internalize that is when it when it hits close to home and when they hear that it affects the people around them. So if you can share your story, it will absolutely save lives. There will be people who will believe you and support you and take care of yourself because right now that is that is really, really important. It's a very painful time. Shauna Aronson, I really appreciate your coming on the podcast today. I know it's been obviously an extraordinarily busy and emotional time for you and everybody at Magain and everybody involved in the work that you do. I think your words are going to help a lot of people, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. 
please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.